Nutritionists and medical experts agree that one of the best things you can do for your health is to eat lots of fruits and vegetables. In fact, as American consumers, we usually have a nice selection of fruits and vegetables year-round. Now, the exact mix changes with the season, but some kinds of apples are available at virtually any time of year. That doesn't just happen by accident. A lot goes into how we can have access to these delicious and nutritious foods. Take, for instance, the old adage, an apple a day keeps the doctor away. While eating apples may not completely prevent all need for a doctor, but apples and other fruits are definitely healthy foods. In any case, we actually do have the option to eat an apple a day, every day, all year. How is that even possible? That's what I want to talk about today. I'm Steve Savage, and this is Pop Agriculture. This is Pop Agriculture, the podcast that blends pop culture with agriculture to tell the stories of the plants, processes, and people who have shaped modern crop production. A true farm-to-table connection that puts food into perspective with your passionate plant scientist host, Steve Savage. People have eaten apples since they were first domesticated from wild trees in Western Asia thousands of years ago. Now, for a long time in the United States and elsewhere, apples were only available from late summer through early fall. They could be stored for a while, but pretty soon they'd develop kind of a brown scald under the skin, they'd get mushy, they'd lose their taste and aroma, and then rot. Well, in the early part of the 20th century, scientists in England started looking for a way to reduce food waste with apples and make them available longer. They did this by tinkering with the atmosphere in the rooms, the cold rooms where the apples were going to be stored. If they increased the level of carbon dioxide and reduced the amount of oxygen in the room, it sort of put the apples to sleep. They could be stored longer and still look and taste like apples. By the 1930s, this new approach was being replicated around the world, and by the 40s, it had become fully commercial under the name Controlled Atmosphere Storage, or CA Storage. Not only did CA storage reduce food waste, it also allowed the apple industry to expand because the window for selling apples was bigger. Then the innovation continued. Now, the CA conditions reduced the scald problem, but with some varieties, scald would still eventually start damaging the fruit. In the 1950s, an antioxidant chemical called diphenylamine, or DPA, was found and it could do a great job of preventing storage scald. And it helped the apple industry grow, and and it made it easier to introduce new varieties because each one had its own unique storage issues. So if you really want a blast from the past, watch a video of the Osmonds' famous song, One Bad Apple, okay? And it has the famous chorus, One bad apple don't spoil the whole bunch girl. Well, maybe that's true for relationships, but when it comes to real apples, one bad apple can definitely doom the whole bunch particularly if an apple gets slightly injured during harvest or transport, spores of fungi can get in and later grow and cause the whole apple to rot during storage. Not only can the fungus then spread to the rest of the apples in the box, the rotting apple generates a lot of ethylene gas, and that speeds up ripening and spoilage with the other apples. It can compromise apples in another boxes in the whole room. So rotting apples can really undo a lot of the benefits of that controlled atmosphere storage. Fortunately, fungicides have been developed that can prevent the growth of the mold, 
And uh, these happen to also be very safe for humans so that they can actually be applied after harvest and before the fruit goes into the storage room. More recently, the apple industry is employing a different post-harvest chemical called 1-MCP. It keeps the fruit from seeing, as so to speak, ethylene gas, so that spoilage and ripening are much delayed. It, it works at really, really low doses. It isn't harmful to us. keeps the apples particularly nice and crisp. It's very widely used now. There are also new technologies that allow remote detection of the status of the fruit in the storage, and that allows the, the people managing it to more exactly regulate the gases in the controlled atmosphere. And that way you can deal with different varieties, different growing conditions, and different storage lengths, basically making apples a lot better. So yes, we can have an apple a day, including our favorite varieties. There's a lot that goes into making that possible. There's another example of a food item that's become a lot more popular because of post-harvest technology. Do you remember fresh pineapple back in the 60s and 70s? The dominant variety being grown was called a smooth cayenne, and it was originally developed for canning. It wasn't very sweet. In fact, it was so acidic that it was actually hard to eat. When the pineapple canning industry moved from Hawaii to Asia because of labor costs, the Pineapple Research Institution of Hawaii came up with a new, far sweeter variety, originally called MD2, and the goal was it was something that could be sold for fresh consumption. Well, MD2 came to be called the Golden Pineapple, but for a long time, it was only available right where the pineapples were being grown, in Hawaii or maybe Central America, because the pineapples wouldn't survive the long boat trip to the market in places like the continental U.S., People often talk about food miles as a measure of sustainability or what makes sense in terms of energy or carbon footprint. Miles can be kind of a misleading measure because ocean shipping takes less energy by far per mile than a lot of other modes of transportation. So whenever it's possible, the, the best thing to do with something like a tropical fruit is to send it in big container ships. And that's how pineapples get to us. Sort of reminds you of the classic Huey Lewis movie soundtrack, Pineapple Express. So the golden pineapple was really tasty, but it couldn't make the trip by boat. Fortunately, the pineapple industry kept innovating. Ultimately, what they found was a wax that could be applied to the pineapple's surface. It regulated the exchange of gases as the living pineapple sort of breathed during shipping. It effectively created a controlled atmosphere inside the pineapple, sort of like the controlled atmosphere in an apple storage room. Well, that wax, combined with certain best practices on the growing and harvesting side, made it possible to ship the golden pineapple from the tropics to the U.S. mainland. And if you look at the history of pineapple consumption in the U.S., it really shot up dramatically once the golden pineapple became available. Of course, we don't eat the peel of a pineapple. But there are post-harvest waxes used on quite a few products, including apples. Some people sort of don't like this idea of a wax, but it's not just there for looks. Without the wax, the fruit declines rapidly by losing water, and it looks bad and goes downhill rapidly. You, you really would not want that fruit. It's really a way to reduce food waste, and only safe, fully edible waxes are used. There's another favorite food that wasn't always so available as it is today, and it's a uniquely American. It's sweet corn. 
Now, corn was domesticated by the indigenous people in the Americas long before Europeans arrived. And most corn is what we call field corn. It's harvested when the kernels are hard and dry. It's good for making cornmeal and for animal feed. Native Americans, however, had discovered that there were certain mutants of sweet corn that were really sweet if you picked them early, while the seed was still developing. That's what sweet corn really is. It's immature corn. Well, American settlers got access to this kind of corn uh, through the Iroquois in 1779. Well, it, it became quite popular, at least among farmers, but there was a problem. As soon as the corn was picked, the sugar in those kernels started turning into starch. When I was growing up, my grandfather would grow sweet corn in his garden, but he would always say, get the pot boiling, before he would even pick the corn. So for a long time, sweet corn was a delicacy available to farmers and gardeners, and it didn't work very well as something that consumers could buy in the store. If you bought sweet corn in the store, it was just kind of bland and starchy, and it wasn't that popular. Eventually, corn breeders were able to combine three separate random gene mutations that they found to generate varieties and hybrids that were sweet, that stayed sweet after being picked, and that had tender kernels. Now, sweet corn was store-ready. But there's another problem. It's common for corn, particularly for sweet corn, to be infested by caterpillars. Caterpillars love sweet corn just as much as we do. No one likes peeling back the husk of corn to find a worm tunneling its way down the cob, leaving yucky frass or caterpillar poop behind. Not seriously yucky, right? If it's just a little damage at the end of the year, maybe some brave customers might just cut that off. But if there's much damage, most people are just going to throw away the whole ear. I grew sweet corn in my garden a couple of years ago, and I didn't take very good care of it. And even though I don't live anywhere close to commercial sweet corn, the insects found my little garden and they ate their way in. It's sort of embarrassing for a plant pest specialist to let this happen. Oh, well. Commercial sweet corn growers have good insect control products to prevent that kind of damage. Organic sweet corn also has to be sprayed, actually even more often than conventional sweet corn. There's a GMO sweet corn that was developed that is actually resistant to the worms, and so it needs far fewer insect control sprays. Unfortunately, gross retailers have been reluctant to carry it, so most farmers can't take advantage of that advance. So that's unfortunate for farmers, but consumers are okay, even if it takes quite a few crop protection applications to keep our sweet corn worm-free. Those insect control products are thoroughly regulated, and also, once the corn is husked, there's essentially no residues of the insecticides left on the part we eat. So with some fortuitous mutations, good crop breeding, and good crop protection agents, sweet corn is now something that consumers can enjoy for many months out of the year. If you look back at the history of sweet corn consumption, it really began to shoot up once all this came together back in the early 90s. Well, have you ever had a peach or nectarine that was really good? I hope so, because when those fruits are what they can be, it's a real treat. Now, these aren't fruits that can be stored very long, and yet you can get them in the stores for quite a while, at least during the summer months in the U.S. That's because breeders have developed varieties that bear fruit at different times. And by spreading out the harvest, they're able to make these fruits available much more of the year. Quality is a different challenge. With many fruits, including peaches and nectarines, they taste the best if they're allowed to get fully ripe before they're picked. 
That's great if the tree is in your yard or a local orchard, but very ripe fruit doesn't do at all well with the mechanical damage that's inevitable during picking, sorting, washing, packing, and transport. All of that really sets it up for being bruised or rotting. So if the fruit is picked a little unripe, it has a much better chance of actually making it to the consumer. The downside is it won't taste as good. Fortunately for us, the peach and nectarine industry came up with a solution. It's called conditioning. And no, peaches don't have to do some kind of workout. After the not-quite-ripe fruit has been harvested, washed, and packed into boxes, it would normally be kept cold. That's generally the best way to prevent rot and decline. But in the conditioning process, the washed, packed fruit is moved into a relatively warm room for a while. The exact time and temperature has to be based on the specific variety and its specific conditions. It's a tricky thing, but people have figured it out. After that warm exposure, the fruit is chilled down and shipped off to the stores. And by the time the fruit is softening up at the consumer level, it has the kind of taste and aroma you could get from picking it fully ripe off the tree. Also, if you've been eating these fruits for years, you may have noticed that they don't rot on your counter or in your refrigerator nearly as quickly as they used to. The brown rot disease of peaches and nectarines is the one that turns your nice piece of fruit into a mushy spore bomb, another seriously yucky outcome. Fortunately, effective fungicides can now be applied to the fruit during the washing and packing process, and they prevent a mold like brown rot, but they're not toxic to us. Since they've become available, we're seeing a lot less rot. Now there's one more issue that can mess things up with a peach or nectarine. For many grocery chains, there are holding rooms for fresh produce, either at the regional distribution center or in the back of an individual store. There are some fruits and vegetables that don't do well being stored cold, but some would like to be fairly cold. So there's a tendency to have this temporary staging room at an in-between temperature, around 50 Fahrenheit. That works for lots of things, but it's a disaster for peaches and nectarines. They do great at low temperatures, and they do okay for a while at room temperature. But at 50 degrees Fahrenheit, they become mealy. You've probably experienced that. So here are all the tricks required to get good peaches and nectarines to us consumers. They have to be carefully grown and harvested and treated to prevent brown rot and then properly conditioned and shipped cold to your grocery store. Then the grocery retailer needs to keep them nice and cold until you buy them. It's okay if the fruits are displayed for a while at room temperature, but not too long, and they should never be held around 50 degrees. So in the U.S. in the 21st century, we probably have some of the most remarkable access in history to a diverse, delicious, and healthy diet in terms of fresh produce. That doesn't just happen. Hopefully I've helped you see that there's a lot of science and a lot of work that goes into making it possible for us to experience something like a crisp, beautiful apple a day, or a sweet pineapple, or a succulent, tender ear of sweet corn, or a flavorful peach. It involves the right varieties of crops being grown well, harvested at the right time, held under the right conditions, treated as needed, and properly transported and displayed. When all that's working right, we're not only getting reliable access to healthy and delicious produce, we can also feel good about reducing food waste. So anyway, I hope I've inspired you to go out and enjoy some great fresh fruits and vegetables. And thanks for joining me for another installment of Pop Agriculture. 
You can follow me on Twitter at GrapeDoc, at G-R-A-P-E-D-O-C, and visit my blog at www.popagriculture.com.